Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. The question and topic for discussion today is why immigration holds the key to Aussie interest rates. We're going to look at the effect of immigration on inflation and interest rates over the last decade. Then we'll examine wage growth and inflation. Lastly, we'll consider planned immigration following COVID. My name's Sam Kerr, and I'm the Senior Advisor at Nucleus Wealth, and I'll be the host of the show for today. As always, we've got Damien Klassen, Head of Investments. Damien, great to have you here as usual. How are you today? Very well. Thanks, Sam. Good to hear. And we also have Leith Van Onselen, uh, the Chief Economist at Nucleus Wealth. Leith, Leith, how are you going today? Yeah, good. Thanks, Sam. Hello, everybody. Good to hear. Uh, so just a quick reminder before we get started, if you enjoy our content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell below to be notified when we go live or when we have a new episode recorded you can watch. Alternatively, you can follow us on your preferred podcast platform. Our show is available on all the majors. So now that we've got that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, we'll get into things. So uh, Damien, I'll hand it over to you to start us off. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I was, I'll have a pretty quickly to lead, but you know, obviously, uh, inflation is a big, big issue for everyone at the moment, and um, you know, Australia is sort of going through this process of, of uh, I think the the RBAs come out to talk about uh, why we should keep in immigration at lower levels to help with wage growth, but um, but both the federal government and um, to a lesser extent the uh, the current opposition are. Are uh, seem pretty hell bent on on getting back to to what we used to have, so um, and and we had the uh, uh, premier of New South Wales talking about catch up, so they need to to to, to extra jam pack it in for a few years to catch up for all all the immigration we've missed. So you know I think uh, Leith obviously talks a lot about his his strong views on this, but you know it's worth sort of jumping in um, to uh, to why. Uh, it does affect, and it is going to affect uh, the level of Aussie interest rates over the next uh, few years, you know, depending upon how much immigration is decided to come through. But I'll, I'll flick straight across the lead. Yeah, thanks for that, Damien. Um, as everyone's probably gathered, uh, there's a big push on at the moment to to reboot Australia's immigration program uh, sooner rather than uh, than, than later. Uh, the intergenerational report um, predicted that Australia's, well, forecast that Australia's immigration intake would would rebound up to 235,000 per year, basically uh, ad infinitum, um, but but not until about 2025. Um, but instead, the federal government now is, uh, has, has, has vowed to bring in 200,000 uh, migrants uh, by July uh, next year. Uh, and that you want to go uh, well ahead of that. Uh, as Damien suggested, the uh, New South Wales Premier um, lodged a plan to bring in 2 million uh, people over five years. We've had, got all the business lobbies obviously uh, pushing to Get as many people in as possible to to alleviate um, you know so-called skills shortages etc. Um, but yeah, there's a bit of a story here that uh, that's not very well um, understood. We've obviously see uh, quite a few economists and markets um, predicting that the RBA is going to be forced to to increase interest rates um, you know possibly even next year on the back of you know rising inflationary pressures. Um, but my view is quite strongly that. Uh, the RBA could sit on the sidelines for years, potentially, um, if if we go back to to extreme levels of immigration, because that'll suppress wages, and wages is 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 the key determinant of inflation, um, and therefore that'll alleviate the need to actually lift interest rates. And 
you know, it, it's actually been 11, 11 long years uh, since um, since interest rates were, were, were last lifted. So we've had basically, you know, over a decade of, uh, of, of falling interest rates. And um, this is this is quite interesting because uh, if you're watching this, if you actually have the the presentations in uh, the presentation in front of you, you can see that the RBA has missed its wage price forecast throughout the entire last decade. Uh, you know, twenty four. So subscribe this for anyone listening in on the uh, on Spotify or uh, Google Podcast or something. Um, so yeah, basically what it is, it's it's the the RBA's wage price index forecast, and and it's basically fallen from sort of four percent down to you know, a bit under two over the last sort of 10 odd years, but it's also showing what they were forecasting at each year. And every year, you know, you've got this 45 degree line headed, headed down and every year there's this popping up, uh, expected to, to bounce back to, to higher levels. And um, and that's been a consi- so consistently being expecting this bounce back, but it just never comes. And that's that's right. And, and, and my contention is that that the, and, and, and the RBA actually admitted this earlier this year. They said that one of the reasons why we haven't had the, the, the wages rebound is because the, the labour supply has continually increased very strongly uh, on the back of immigration. So effectively, in the 15 years leading up to COVID, uh, Australia effectively uh, imported over 180,000 workers a year into the economy. And what that means is when you continually, uh, I guess, increase the labour supply at such a strong rate, it makes it a lot harder to uh, to lower unemployment and tighten the labour market sufficiently to drive those uh, the, uh, to drive wage growth and ergo inflationary pressure. Um, so, wage, uh, Australia's anemic wage growth is the key reason why underlying inflation has been so low over the last decade or so, and why the RBA has been able to basically keep cutting interest rates and. And my contention is that, it, well, if we just go back to the same policy of just uh, importing a whole bunch of people into the labour market every year, you're going to get exactly the same result. And we could potentially get a situation where the RBA sits on the sidelines for another decade if, um, if, we, if, if we ramp up the immigration profile so strongly. Um, and, and the interesting thing that's happening is uh, at the moment, um, without so many uh, you know, people coming into the economy. We've actually lost about half a million uh, temporary migrants as well, and about 400,000 of those are workers. Uh, we've actually seen the labour market tighten quite quite significantly. Uh, so, I've I've put a few charts in the in, in the uh, in the briefing pack, which if you're watching and you've seen it, otherwise I'll explain it. I show this quite starkly. Uh, effectively, um, since since COVID began, uh, the percentage of temporary migrant workers. Um, in, in the labour market, it's fallen from about 4% to 1% as we've lost all those workers. At the same time, the number of unemployed Australians per job has created to a record low level of just two. So there's effectively two unemployed people per, per job vacancy at the moment, which is which is unheard of uh, in recorded history. So um, with, with so many uh, temporary migrants having left and not been replaced by obviously a annual flow of 180,000, which is the average that we used to get. Uh, we, we, we've seen the Australian labour market tighten quite significantly. And just before the lockdowns and, in Sydney, and Sydney and Melbourne. That, that's, that's, that's I mean, we're obviously seeing that in other countries as well, who didn't have run such high immigration rates. And, and I guess, it, to me, it seems to be there's some structural changes as well in terms of the, the unemployment in that, um, 
you know, we had a lot of people in the service industries who have now had to change jobs. And, and you know, once you you know you were a waiter, now you've decided to become a you know, you you're stacking uh, shelves at, at the grocery store. Um, to, to get you to back to being a waiter is is probably going to take more money, or there's going to be you know, I guess danger money in, in, in so to speak in terms of actually having to to go back to a, a, a job that that maybe has less security if if we have further lockdowns. So I guess your thoughts on how much of it's sort of based on that frictional point versus how much of it's based on the um, uh, based on yeah, not enough immigrants. Yeah, look at look. Look, it's hard to say. Uh, certainly, um, all the in, well, most of the employers across the economy are arguing that they need open borders because they've, they've they've got a lack of migrant workers coming in. So, if you if you take them on at, at face value, um, they're they're arguing that it's because we don't have the uh, the flow of foreign workers coming in. Um, certainly, I think there is some frictional um, uh, factors there. Uh, obviously. If you've been treated poorly during the pandemic, you lost your job because you worked in the cafe, etc. You, you're not going to be uh, too keen to go back to that sort of work after the pandemic, um, because there's obviously risks that will happen again. You might feel a bit bitter. Uh, you want a more secure and stable job. Um, at the same time, we've also got to—I mean, I've got to be—I've got to keep it 100% real here. Um, part of the reason why why obviously the labour market's tight is also because the government has uh, pushed out a massive stimulus package. Um, you know, $200 billion plus, uh, which is obviously boosted demand as well. So so there is obviously stimulus at play as well. But um, I guess my key point is that when you don't, uh, when we don't have the labour supply growing as strongly as it, as the economy became used to, the labour market will necessarily tighten. And it's one of the reasons why just before uh, this New South Wales and Victorian lockdowns, Australia's unemployment rate fell to the lowest it's been since the global financial crisis in 2008. To, at four four and a half percent, and the RBA has explicitly said that it won't raise interest rates until underlying inflation um, hits its target of two and a half to three percent. Um, and we're you know we're obviously a long way away from that at the moment. But uh, historically, to get to that target range, Australia has needed wage growth of between three and three uh, three to three and three quarter percent. Um, so that tells us, you know, at, at the moment it's 2.2%. So um, that tells us that we do need wages to rise before inflation will likely hit its target range, which will then trigger interest rate rises. And uh, obviously, if you're going to uh, keep pumping the labour supply, well, you're not going to get unemployment down enough. And the RBA has said that it needs unemployment to fall to about 4% or lower in order to generate uh, wage growth with a three in front of it. So I guess my point is if you join all the dots together, um, if we keep boosting labour supply, unemployment is not going to fall to that four four uh, percent level or below to trigger three plus percent wage growth, which is required to hit the inflation target, and therefore deliver interest rate rises. So this is why um, I sort of view uh, the, the immigration intake is the key. To jumping back, I mean, you know, you've talked about a bit about the businesses wanting to the business lobby wanting this. So from a I guess from an investment perspective. Um, certainly, there's a there's a range of companies out there where you'd say, um, you know, things like your Harvey Normans and 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 um, your banks and, and places like that, where if you do get an immigration push, it's good for them in terms of um, you know more customers getting getting jam packed into it. Um, they get to keep their wages low because they're um, you know they've got lots of lots of people around, and so margins are, are, are relatively strong. And so it's a 
it's a sort of short-term gain for a long-term loss in terms of in terms of the way you look at the from a company perspective. But but there's also there's particular types of companies that will benefit more than others. So um, you know, I guess the companies that are that are more reliant on um, people uh, power. Sorry, what's that? Uh, yeah, companies that are more reliant on people power. So obviously, yes. uh, you know, you 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 your retail retailers, your Harvey Norman, your property developers, mm-hmm. um, those sorts of companies, which which basically, uh, you know, earn their crust by having more people in the economy uh, to either spend or consume. Um, yeah. th- th- those sorts of those sorts of companies obviously benefit benefit from this. Um, but Damo, you, you're 100% right in that you say you know you said it's a short-term gain. It certainly is, uh, but it does cause structural problems for the economy. So obviously, if you bring in a whole bunch of people, um, you're going to boost the number of consumers in the economy, right? So there's more people to sell to, which is a, which is a win. Um, you also, as you said, you're going to suppress late uh, your 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 wage costs, um, and if my theory is correct, you're also going to keep interest rates lower, which is also good. Uh, but from a longer term perspective, um, if everyone's wages aren't rising as quickly, that also means that uh, in another way, um, people got less money to spend. And it can also cause, obviously, um, you know, productivity issues for the economy. If yeah. over the longer term, if if if, if, um, if, if firms in the economy, you know, instead of automating and investing in uh, in in, in uh, productive equipment they just uh, get a low-paid worker well that obviously has productivity issues for the economy uh, there, there, yeah, there's, a, there, there's a reason why in developed countries um you see roads etc being built with you know a small number of people and lots of machinery whereas if you go to a developing country they're built with lots of people and very little machinery and um the reason is because labor is a lot cheaper over there but it's a lot more efficient obviously to use um to to, to be capital intensive and uh, if you sort of go towards a lower wage, um, high, you know, uh, people service in economy, well, you're going to lower productivity over the long run. That's uh, yeah. that's my view, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 it's that part. It's like as you said, where you're saying, um, you know, say your fruit picking is is probably one of those good examples where there's some automated fruit picking, but you probably need I don't know thirty dollar an hour wages ish, or maybe twenty five dollar to make that worthwhile. For the, yep. to actually invest in these fruit picking picking machines, and at the, so you know if you can bring people in at, at fifteen dollars an hour and below minimum wages from, from other countries, then um, there's a short term win for you. But the, you know the people who or the countries that are investing in this fruit picking machines and and can then you know the thirty dollars becomes twenty eight dollars becomes twenty six dollars over time as 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 they improve and and um, you know and, and they're generating I guess money from. The manufacturing of those things and and the um, you know, creating sort of real uh, tangible you know R and D and intellectual property as opposed to just saying yeah our, our competitive advantages will bring in as many people as possible and 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 give them low wages and so um, yeah so so yeah, that, I guess that's where I'm talking about the short term short term gain for the longer term loss and 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 you know, we've obviously hit on this program a lot about this whole issue of um, uh, as soon as you start start ending up with uh, inequalities that, that get that get very large, then you then you run into that problem. That yes, as a mass, you know, if you're if you're a Woolworths or a Harvey Norman, you know, there's a whole bunch of people just moved in close to your stores, and you've got some of the best areas, and so you benefit from that. But um, the individuals actually going to these places are the ones that suffer, and then you start getting more political dis, uh, disruption and and political unrest because 
of the wide gaps and and also you don't yeah you don't have the same level of demand you keep running into the same problem we've had lack of demand in that um you know we keep needing to give people lower interest rates to afford the price rises that have happened because we're putting more people through and you know you get that left in that circular argument so yeah completely with you on that but but i guess noting that um you know if this is the way we're going then uh and it's not certain we're headed in that direction, but it certainly looks like it at the moment, is that you know, a lot of the companies that did benefit over the last decade, um, uh, you know, at the expense of the rest of the economy, you know, other ones that will probably benefit again over the over this period. Yeah, absolutely. So so effectively we'll be left with sort of a I guess a more inward focused um, you know, people servicing domestically based economy rather than say an export based economy. Uh, I mean we'll always obviously export you know, commodities and, 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 and primary produce, but, um, you know, we're not going to get that more advanced type of, uh, um, you know, uh, manufacturers or, or, or more advanced economy. It's going to be basically, um, you know, digging holes and, and, uh, and, and, and farming stuff and selling that as well as, uh, just, you know, catering towards a continually growing domestic, um, you know, marketplace in people, whether it's just building more houses for them, uh, you know, all the consumables that go with it, uh, services, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and the problem is, um, you know, obviously the the bigger the, the, the bigger our cities get with just more and more people, um, you know, the the more the economy becomes focused on just providing services for those people, houses, et cetera. And, and those tend to be quite low productivity. Um, services in industries, um, by definition, a lower productivity than, uh, than than say manufacturing type ones and uh, or um, you know exporting focused industries and the reason for that is because they're not they're not subject to uh, to foreign competition uh, by and large and also don't use you know a lot of capital equipment etc. Um, so yeah, it, it, there is a long term cost to this, uh, not just in um, you know in an economic sense but obviously also living standards etc. By you know forcing people to live in apartments instead of houses and more congestion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's basically the thesis. Um, it's a pretty direct link. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, a lot of economists, as I said, seem to think that we're going to have interest rate rises. And my view is, no, we won't if we just go back to the same model of, uh, of, of running a very strong immigration program. So that's going to expand the labour supply. Um, it's going to get rid of that labour market um, tightness that we need to bring unemployment right down and to uh, basically give employees bargaining power so and to lift wages. So, um, you know, I, I see absolutely no reason why if we go back to this sort of big Australia, big immigration type program that the RBA couldn't sit on its hands potentially for years and mm. we could end up just, you know, bouncing around with very low interest rates um, or potentially negative interest rates down the track uh, the next cycle uh, instead of um, interest rates, you know, ratcheting back up. Um, yeah. Of course, could be wrong. I mean, there could be other other inflationary pressures, but given that wage growth has been, you know, one of the primary drivers of inflation for a long time, and um, you know, it's fair to say that if wages don't recover uh, to a decent amount, well, we're not going to have those inflationary pressures. Mm. Now we've got a chart here, um, Big Australia Rebooted, uh, which is looking at this uh, the net overseas migration rates over the last um, so what's that twenty odd years. And looking forward, um... yeah, fifteen years actually. So basically, uh, from about two thousand five, the the intake. Um, so basically, the fifteen years up to two thousand five, Australia mm -hmm. averaged about ninety thousand uh, net overseas migration a year, and 
the 15 years up to the pandemic, uh, so up to the end of 2019, uh, basically immigration was increased on average by 140%. Um, so it was ramped up quite significantly. And, and the projection from the intergenerational report is that for to, to average 235,000 a year, basically forever. Um, and in fact, the federal government wants to bring that start date forward to now, effectively. Mm. Uh, so um, we're, we're just going to get uh, more population growth quicker than what, the, what, what, what this chart and what the intergenerational report actually predicted. Yeah. Now, look, I guess one of the questions, one of the big questions, and I haven't seen any anything out there, but, you know, the, is how likely people are to come. So I sort of, I guess, putting it in, in context, um, you know, in, in the financial crisis, uh, when Australia sort of threw its borders open, we were a little bit of a, we we're one of the, the few countries that didn't have uh, double digit interest, um, unemployment rates and, and a massive fallout because China had started its big spending spree. And, and so a mining uh, sector was sort of booming, which meant that uh, I think a lot of people could come to Australia or, or even if it's expats coming home or, or people you know, moving to Australia with a view that actually there's there's employment there and and, and there's something to be found. Now, um, I know unemployment's quite low around the world, but, but I guess there are potentially some issues around the whole COVID uh, lockdowns and, and just a mental um, thing about do I want to move to a country halfway around the world and potentially you know if there are more lockdowns or more more variants sort of losing my job and and not having a, a family support network there um, I don't know what whether you how likely you you are once they throw the borders open for, for people to come streaming back in or whether there'll, there'll be a bit of a slower start than, than expected uh, look look it's it, it's honestly impossible for me to say uh, certainly Australia's facing more competition. Uh, for, for migrants than it did uh, pre-pandemic. So um, the easiest way to see this is, uh, well, for example, Canada. Canada's uh, vowed to take in 400,000 a year. Um, and and they're, they're going really hard in immigration. Uh, so is... And, and sorry, is that 400 net or 400? Uh, sorry, yeah, uh, 400,000 net overseas migration. So net. Net, right. Okay. Uh, so... so um, well, double what we're looking at and, and not that much bigger as a country. Yeah, so it's about 10 million more people there, but it's yeah, it's significantly larger. So Australia's had the highest um, highest intake, or one one of the largest intakes for you know for well over for about 15 years. But Canada wants to is going really hard, uh, and and um, and they've also you know reduced their um, their requirements as well. So basically, it's a lot easier to get uh, residency over there now and to go, come. Um, at the same time, the UK is uh, doing a similar thing, not not so much with immigration, but with international students. So Australia's facing a lot of competition. Um, and one of the key drivers of Australia's immigration intake is actually international students. So uh, if we're facing more competition from the UK and Canada, et cetera, um, it might be harder to hit these these targets. But at the same time, uh, Australia is also offering a lot more, uh, is also offering more pathways than they did pre-pandemic. So they're making it a lot easier to, to take lower skilled jobs and then transition to permanent residency. Um, they're, they're, they're giving a lot of carrots to um, for foreign students as well. So if they come here and they can do extra years of work uh, once they do their degrees, et cetera. So um, there is a bit of a war on to try and bring in people across a lot of, you know, across Australia uh, and Canada in particular, and to a lesser extent, the UK. Uh, so um, it's really hard to tell how it's going to plan out, but, mm. But my view is Australia is always desirable, right? We're, we've got a pretty good lifestyle here. Um, and 
it, it wouldn't be that hard if Australia wanted to to bring in like you know if we wanted to we could probably bring in a million a million uh, migrants in two years quite easily by just dropping the the eligibility standards and basically uh, opening opening up the um, yeah completely opening so I don't think Australia will have that much trouble attracting migrants we might have trouble attracting uh, high skilled and highly paid ones. Um, yeah, okay. That, that was actually where I was going to leave with this next, with the next questions along these thoughts is so. So if they, if they if they sort of did tighten the criteria in terms of saying okay, let's try and make sure that people coming in are more highly skilled, um, then sort of economically, how how different is that versus sort of bringing in the the, the hairdressers and and waiters and um, you know I guess the the service staff for the for the current economy if if we're not bringing in cheap service stuff but instead we are trying to bring in you know engineers and and um you know doctors and lawyers and and sort of higher paid roles um how does that sort of fit with with your views on um interest rates and, and inflation there yeah well certainly i mean i i'd support that not not so much engineers because uh report came out um you know earlier this month which basically said that uh half of the migrant engineers are unemployed, another quarter are underemployed. Um, so yeah. we probably don't need engineers, but I get your point. Uh, if, if you brought in high skilled, high paid, I think that'd be fantastic. Um, and in fact, if we lifted the requirements to do that, we'd actually see the numbers of um, uh, migrants coming, you know, fall quite sharply to probably go back to the historical level around 100,000 a year, uh, just because the quality bar be lifted so high, um, the amount that qualified to, to come here would be a lot lower. But they'd be mm -hmm. much higher quality. I think that'd be a really good good move. Um, so, second party questions uh, was what well, does I mean, that mean? I guess the question is, you know, two hundred thousand people with a with a high bar versus two hundred thousand people with a low bar. Um, yeah, what just the effects on inflation? Because it's yeah. Well, I mean, for start, I, I don't think you would get two hundred thousand with a high bar because I don't think you, right. you could possibly feel that uh, because at, at at the moment, um, for example, the the for, for a skilled migrant, so not we're talking about skilled here, not unskilled. Mm. Um, in order to come over here in a temporary skilled visa, you only need to be paid fifty-three thousand nine hundred, which is actually about ten percent less than the median uh, yeah. wage in Australia, and that mm. that includes unskilled. So at the moment, the bar is really low, and pretty much anyone can come over here and get a visa and, and work. It's not particularly hard. We've got about uh, you know six hundred plus occupations on the skill shortage list. Most of them aren't in, aren't in shortage uh, even now. Uh, so at the moment, it's pretty much open slather. Um, and if you raise that to say requiring, um, you know, someone uh, migrant worker to be paid ninety thousand, which is um, at the seventy fifth percentile of earnings, well, I don't think you, you're automatically going to cut out a massive amount that normally come because they wouldn't be able to qualify anymore. Um, so I don't think we could fill two hundred thousand at a good requirement. Um, so. Uh, I suppose if we did, you know, lift the threshold, we might probably get more like a hundred thousand. They'd be much higher quality. They'd pay more tax. Uh, they'd be less unemployed, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be just better quality. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, and, and 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 that would um, logically that would lower wages for professionals because professionals who would would uh, would have more competition for those jobs, mm. but it'd lift wages obviously for the lower skilled professions. Because yeah. they'd be getting less competition from uh, the lower skilled migrants that we get at the moment. Um, so net net, uh, I'd, I'd say it'd actually be uh, wage growth positive, and probably um, you know would 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 lead to you know higher 
inflation and other things equal and possibly a higher interest rates other things yeah. equal. Now, um, I know they're hard to pin down on, on what their policies are different to, to, to liberals, but you know, if Albanese gets in, um, any real differences in your view? Yeah, look, it's a bit hard to say. Um, Albo and co have been, uh, this month, earlier this month, have been a little bit more circumspect about uh, rebooting immigration. So he has come out and said, oh, we should be training Australians, et cetera. But I don't know if that's just lip service. I mean, they've been saying that for a while. Um, Labor's been running the line a little bit that we need less temporary migration and more permanent. So what that means for net overseas migration is a bit a bit iffy. Um, he certainly, I'm not sure if he's just fence sitting, trying to sort of play both sides at the moment, trying to sort of appease the union movement, but at the same time, keep the business lobby happy by effectively keeping the number the same. Uh, until Labor comes out with a definitive policy, which we haven't seen yet, I think it's all, I, I think we can say they're probably in favour. Um, just a slightly different composition to, to Liberals, maybe, um, you know, a little bit, maybe a little bit harder on uh, on, on the sort of really low, low skill, low wage, temporary migration in favour of more slightly better skill. Yeah. Um, but, but, but overall, I, I, overall, they support Big Australia. Uh, yeah, insignificantly different. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Just sort of, we just sort of, you know, at, at, at the edges. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so, um, uh, and I guess we've already been, we've already seen sort of things put off initially. I'm not sure how much you saw, how much, um, you know, when the borders were thrown open, you know, how, I guess, whether there's any stats on the amount that sort of had booked in and now, and now had to cancel or, or move it till next year. I'm not sure if you've yeah, seen so yeah, to, to, to your point, um, so, so the, the borders are meant to open on December 1st mm. uh, and because of the, the Omicron strain of, of the, you know, the new strain of coronavirus, um, the government pushed that back by two weeks. Um, but the border did open on the, the 15th anyway. Uh, so it was basically just a two, two-week delay. I don't think it made that much difference. And it certainly isn't enough to move the needle in, you know, over the longer term. Um, all it means is that the, the start date on that um, intergenerational report you know, projected migration graph. It got moved this way. It's moved slightly back that way. Um, so I don't think it's going to make much difference. Like two two weeks doesn't really move the move the needle. Um, no, it's more, then again, it's probably more the sign, I guess. It's more the, the the view about look, are we really open or not? And uh, and yes, yes. Do I move to this country and and then will will I be back in lockdown or sent home or you know without support? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. The, but. This, yeah. But, but but Australia wasn't the only country to do that. I mean, some other countries did did similar sorts of things. Uh, so yes. you know, I guess if you're if you're a prospective migrant, you're looking at Australia, UK, Canada, whatever. Um, they all kind of uh, yeah. Most of the countries did some sort of travel restrictions. Um, yeah, you know, especially in response when, when when the new strain first emerged, because people were unsure about it. Um, but then again, all, all, all this whole discussion could be mute in. Or it could be you know, null and void in three months because we, we don't know what's around the corner and we could easily start seeing uh, some new strain or this current strain might end up taking a turn for the worst and we could end up in uh, you know some new form of um, you know border restrictions globally we just don't know but based on the information we've got now that the, the current plan and the government's been explicit is they want two hundred thousand by july and and hopefully more um the uh the uh, I think it was the Home Affairs Minister um, said that uh, basically, 
I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much quoting or, you know, very close to quoting as many as possible is what mm. she, what she said, uh, late November in terms of the, um, the, the, the migration reboot. So they certainly want them back. They want them back quickly. And, and obviously that'll, um, you know, increase labor market slack. It'll make it harder to hit those, that 4% unemployment level. And, yeah. and uh, it'll hard, be hard to hit those sort of wage growth targets at 3% plus that the RBA wants. Yeah. Uh, rental growth, though, I'm assuming that rental is positive for, for home rental growth. Yeah. And, and that, mate, part, rental, more important. rental growth is, uh, is is a strange one. So we've had obviously last 18 months um, almost zero migration, yet rents have boomed, um, which you know completely counterintuitive, uh, except in those small areas like, say, Sydney and Melbourne high rides. But um, you know, across the board in Australia, regional, capital city, etc., more houses than units, rents have gone through the roof. And uh, my, my thinking, working assumption on that is that rents have gone up because the number of people per dwelling has shrunk. Um, as people, you know, didn't want to bunch together and you've had, you know, kids move out of home, you've had people moving out of share houses, you've had people buy second houses, for example, so it takes housing stock out of the market. Yep, um, increased divorce rates. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. All those, all those factors, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Uh, like, why, why would rent, why would rental vacancies fall and rents rise when you've got less population growth? Doesn't make sense. But that being said, um, if obviously uh, big migration is rebooted, but we're going to have you know hundreds of thousands of more people moving into rental markets first, which is what they typically do, which will be which will tighten the rental market. Other things equal. So unless we get a reversal of those other factors, like the number of people per dwelling rises. It's just going to mean more more rental pressure, more rent rises, tighter vacancies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So the thoughts around yeah, I guess it's that it's yeah. I think you sort of touched on something I've been sort of looking at putting down in, in writing some time over, which is this idea that you know maybe you're with with low interest rates, um, you know maybe your biggest competitor for for people buying into to um to new homes might not be the investor anymore it might be the uh, the second homeowner so there's as you start to sort of hey well you know what's that's probably more and that takes out more out of the market as you said yeah and and look i mean this is obviously anecdotal but i know about three people who bought second houses um Mm. you know sort of holiday houses which they're not necessarily going to rent out they're going to rent out a small portion of the year Mm. um and then that that automatic it's a bit like the airbnb effect like if um you know it if a whole bunch of places, uh, former rental homes become Airbnbs, well, that gets removed from the long-term rental market, and that makes it harder, well, yeah. tighter. And, and, and effectively, though, an Airbnb is a second home, regardless of whether it's yeah. your second, regardless of the owner, whether the owner's using it as a second home, it's effectively empty. And you know, if I'm going to go and rent it, it's not like I'm moving out of my current place and then moving into this Airbnb and then moving back again. Like there's, there's not a. Um, it is genuinely a house that's been taken out of the um, long-term pool, the pool for people who are either living or, or renting in in a place as a permanent um, as a permanent home. Yeah, yeah, and 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 just on just on the property thing, uh, we've obviously with uh, home builder, as much as I thought it was stupid policy when it came out, and I wanted more more sort of social housing, um, mm-hmm. it has been pretty effective in actually juicing uh, construction rates. Um, so. Just about all those homes that were um, that were, that that were you know started because the home builder haven't been completed yet, and we're looking at a massive flood of um, supply going to hit the market next year. Now, they um, if we don't if we didn't get a you know big Australia 
uh, big immigration reboot, um, mm. we we could potentially looking at a you know several year period of of um, you know the housing construction industry falling in a hole because they've effectively bought forward all this demand, uh, which is currently being built now uh, and will be built also next year, and then it'll hit the market say from late next year, mm. and then there's going to be a big hole of um, you know um, demand being brought forward, not enough new people coming in to yeah, justify you, building more houses and the whole construction so industry. Both parties, are, both parties are on board with this though, didn't you say? Like it's hard to- That's right. I, guess, I mean, and, and while the RBA has flipped its tunes, it would be nice to, to they show some more restraint. I guess the, yeah, the, the reality of the situation is at the moment, very much look as if, um, yeah, it's coming regardless of whether it's good policy or not. Oh yeah, it, it, all, all the all the lobby groups, whether it's the edgy migration industry, that's the education migration industry, which is um, basically one of the same thing. The universities, etc. Um, you know, the property lobby, uh, that you know, big all, all the big business lobbies, they all want it, and we know that they pull the pull the you know policy policymaker strings and the politician strings more than the ordinary person who's you know pretty silent on this or um, you know views are ignored. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fully uh, uh, succumbed to the fact that we're just going back to the same business as usual um, model we ran last decade, and it's going to lead to the same results. Where effectively we'll have another decade of, you know, anemic um, per capita GDP growth, anemic, you know, per capita disposable income growth, and it'll just be basically, uh, you know, th th there's the Australian Treasury uses a three P's framework to analyse the Australian economy, so they basically say you get growth from three things productivity, uh, labour force participation and population. That's the three Ps. Well, productivity growth shot. It's been shot for a decade. Uh, we've got we've had low productivity growth for a decade. Um, labour force participation just before C uh, New South Wales and Victoria went into lockdown was at the highest in Australia's history. Uh, so there isn't much more juice to be squeezed from the lemon there. And what that leaves is really population growth is the, almost the sole driver of the Australian economy, uh, which is why they're looking to run this big immigration program because um you know it does boost growth but the problem with it is it doesn't necessarily boost per person growth per capita growth and that and that's the thing that policymakers should be looking at because that's what um you know improves living standards uh, obviously you know gdp and etc doesn't doesn't factor in other impacts like the environment and uh, quality of life and you know whether or not you can get a seat on the train whether or not you have to live in an apartment or a or a or a house um environmental factors etc but on pure material economic grounds policymakers should be looking at the per, per capita impacts but they never do and that's why last decade was the weakest decade in, in per capita outcomes that the australian economy has seen on record uh, records mm -hmm. going back 60 years so i think australia is basically going to repeat the same dose as what we did last decade and we're going to get exactly the same results uh another decade of you know another lost decade for living standards effectively Excellent. So, well, Lisa, Lisa, I've, I've just got a got a couple of questions here. Sure. So, in in regards to these immigration numbers, are they are they just workers or are they workers and students? No, no. So, the, so the net overseas migration number is basically it's so it's basically um, uh, it's based on the twelve eighteen rule. So, basically, if, if you're if you're a resident in Australia for twelve out of eighteen months, you count as a net overseas migrant. Uh, the reason why they do that is if you come over here for as a tourist, uh, you're not counted. Um, so basically, the net overseas migration is the net the the total number of people coming in meeting that rule 
versus minus those who've left meeting that rule. So, um, so the actual arrivals number will be significantly higher than that. But obviously, Australia loses a certain amount of people every year, whether that's Australians leaving or that's um, some migrants going home, etc. So the net amount is the net that actually comes uh, basically a long-term resident in Australia, whether that's permanent or long-term temporary. Okay, okay, that's that's understood. And, and, and the other um, thing, sorry, Sam, is worth noting is that um, Australia's pathways are effectively set up so that uh, you know you come in as a student, you pay your money to, to to be a student, and then you get an easy path into into citizenship. So, yeah, so know, so you um, you automatically get a two-year work visa. Uh, so, you, so you can work while you study, and then once you graduate, you can basically stay and work in any job. It's not means not not uh, skills tested, etc. For two years, and then they they tend to um, you know bounce around from one visa to another before they get permanent residency. So it's kind of like a long form uh, way of yeah you know, backdoor way of getting residency. Um, so and, particularly from a country like um, from a developing country, it's much easier to get in through that than it is to, to, to apply directly, I guess. Yeah, the... absolutely. And so so if you apply directly, um, you have to be generally, well, usually uh, employer sponsored, so, and you've got to be skilled. Um, alternatively, you can get through some state nominations, but you've got to, you've got to be, you've got to have a qualification like being an engineer or something, um, but you don't necessarily need to have a job. So uh, in, in, in a lot of these state nominations, so, we, we, we have this perverse, uh, perverse situation where, as I mentioned before, um, half of the migrant engineers were brought in actually are unemployed and another quarter are uh, underemployed because they, they, they can come in under these pathways, but then they can't get a job as an engineer um, because there's just too too many of them. Um, so well, yeah, the, or, whole, the whole, whole system is... Or they come in without the, the the skills that people are looking for. You know, yeah, exactly. They, yeah, their That's English right. language skills might not be as high, or, or they might be you know in, in programming languages that, that others that aren't using. So yeah, yeah. I mean, look, look, yeah, look, it, it, it's it's unfortunate for everyone. Really, it's unfortunate for them. It's unfortunate for their country who loses their skills, mm. and it's obviously um, you know it's not it's not a great situation for us either. So it's, it's kind of a lose, lose, lose situation. Um, when, when you have those sorts of things, we, we it's a similar story for accountants. Yeah. I suppose there is. Yeah. There's always, there's, yeah, there's always someone who wins, but, um, yeah, ho hopefully that, uh, that explains that. So, so, so it's, it's net overseas migration and it's not just, so net overseas migration can, can include both temporaries and permanents. Um, but over the long run, um, Australia's immigration intake is determined by the permanent migrant intake because temporaries, by definition, have to leave eventually. So if they can't transition to permanent residency, they might be able to stay here for 10 years, but they eventually have to go home. Um, so it's the permanent migrant intake, which is currently uh, set at about 180,000 once you count humanitarians, um, that sets the overseas migration intake. And under the intergenerational report, uh, it's going to go back up to you know, about 210,000. You know, in, in a year or two. So, effectively, um, yeah, we'd be looking at um, big Australia. Okay, okay, and uh, so uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, net immigration. It's going to continue to well, sort of uh, return to pre-pandemic levels. 
what do you see playing out if you know that's that's going to be the case going forward and interest rates rise say sooner than expected and then continue to sort of trend up like how do you how do you see that um affecting things uh well i mean i i, I think if um if if we get the immigration rebooted pre-pandemic levels, we, we, we won't get the wage growth, we won't get the inflation, we won't get the interest rate rises. Um, so you just don't only, think it, it will happen at all? No, no, I don't, I don't. Um, you know, so historically at least, um, the we've needed wage growth uh, between three and three and three quarter percent for the RBA to hit its inflation target. And, you know, we, we haven't seen wage growth at 3% for since March 2013. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're so far away from that. Um, you know, it's eight, eight years since we've had, had wage growth above 3%. And yeah, sure, it's rebounded a little bit. It's a 2.2% currently, but, um, and, 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 and there are signs that it's, that, that wage pressures are rising, obviously, which is why employers are screaming for migrants because they're, you know, they're seeing the wage, the wage costs go up. Um, and my point is, all those uh, inflationary, all the, the the wage cost pressures will disappear if we just go back to, you know, if if we give employers carte blanche to effectively import people, because that'll that'll um, reduce employers employees bargaining power, uh, and it'll make it you know a lot easier for them not to not to grant pay rises, but they can just grab someone from overseas who's willing to work for less. Uh, so that's. That's the whole thesis, I guess, here is that we're not going to get inflationary pressures or, or or interest rate rises if we go back to the same policy that we did last decade. Okay, okay, that's great. Uh, Damien, have you got any any final thoughts, anything to add? No, no, I think that's good. Yeah, good point to wrap it up. Okay, uh, great. So now we've got the viewer question of the week. Uh, so this is for viewers to drop into the comments, have a bit of discussion between yourselves over the coming week. Uh, so the question is, should Australia return to pre-pandemic levels of immigration? Uh, so, yep, feel free to, to have a bit of a chat, a bit of discussion. Uh, so that almost wraps us up. So just want to say thank you, Damien. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thanks. Leith, thank uh, you. All, yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, Leith. Uh, <laughs> my right. apologies. <laughs> Uh, always insightful as usual. Uh, we do welcome your feedback on the show, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. Uh, if you do have any ideas, please drop them in the YouTube comments below or send us an email at contact at nucleuswealth.com. Uh, just a reminder, this is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. Uh, if you do want to discuss how you can personally take advantage of, of these uh, upcoming trends or themes in your portfolio, uh, please go to our website at nucleuswealth.com and you can book, book a call with myself or the team there. Uh, so just want to say thanks again to everyone that's watched this episode and to all the people that have asked questions along the way. Don't forget to like the video now. And finally, if you know of anyone that might get something out of this episode, would really appreciate it if you please share it with them. Uh, you can also view some previous content that we've uh, created. So just head over to nucleuswealth.com uh, forward slash content. Uh, and you can start to date with any news from us on all social media platforms. So finally, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, for myself, Damien Leith, and the team at Nucleus Wealth, 
Uh, we look forward to seeing you again at the next episode. And bye for now.